Last Sunday, we started our series, The Landscape of Lent, which we're using some of the natural elements to help us recall, remember, the pivotal scriptures that led Jesus to his experience on the cross. Last Sunday, we focused on the wilderness, the desert wilderness, and learned how that prepared Jesus for his public ministry. Today, we focus upon the wind. And we'll see how Jesus uses that, that imagery of the wind to teach Nicodemus something very important about faith. Now, sometimes when you read scripture, it's helpful to have a little bit of some CSI skills. Because you might have noticed, probably passed over it, but you notice in the second verse it mentions that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Did you catch that? Now, that may not be a big deal to us because we're not afraid at night. We have electricity. We have lights. We have security lights everywhere. It's not a big deal to us. But in biblical days, it was a big deal. Darkness was a very real force, and candles and oil that bring light in the middle of the night were expensive for the average family. You didn't waste them unless you just absolutely had to. So it's very significant that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at the night at night, because the only good reason for that is to be sure that he's not seen by his fellow Jewish leaders. It could put Nicodemus crossways with some of his peers. And so he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And that really tells Jesus everything he needs to know about Nicodemus. And, and when he comes, he... Um, doesn't come across as a spiritual giant, does he? Uh, he comes and he is told by Jesus that he needs to be born anew. And that just doesn't seem to register with him all that well. And, and, and so they enter into this dialogue. Now, you must understand where Nicodemus is coming from just a little bit. You see, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And if we read the Bible a lot, we know that that's kind of a bad thing to us as we read the scriptures. But in Jesus' day, that really would not have been a bad thing because the Pharisees in Jesus' day were the respected people. They were the good church people of their time. Actually, their movement started with a very noble purpose. Back in the 3rd BCE, they began because Judaism was in danger of getting corrupted by Hellenism, Greek philosophy and thought. It was watering down the faith. And so a movement arose of the faithful Jews to try to preserve those sacred traditions and they, they focused very much upon the Jewish law and trying to revive that as a focus and center for most Jews. And they did such a good job of it that they became the dominant religious force of their time. They became the respected ones. They became the ones that began to have some power. And with power comes sometimes a little bit of corruption. And so they were the ones that were in favor. They come to Jesus Nicodemus, though, knows that there's something missing. As much as he knows about the law, as much as he seems to understand, he realizes that he's missing something, and so he seeks out Jesus. But when he seeks him out, you'd think he'd begin with a question, don't you? But he doesn't. He starts with a statement. He starts with a comment. I've seen the miracles that you've performed. I've seen what you've done. You must be from God. I know who you are. But Jesus realizes that he needs to be humbled just a little bit if he's to experience and receive all that God has for him. 
And so he challenges him. You might say that Nicodemus had a little bit of know-it-all in him. Ever know anybody like that? Yeah. We see people around. I've seen Christians who are so focused upon the search for truth and, and know their Bibles inside and out and pound upon it that they sometimes put you off even. Or you see other persons who hide and mask their own insecurities by knowledge and the, and the pride that they have in what they know. Matter of fact, I've seen some of that in my own family. My brother and I have this joke running in our family that we have a know-it-all gene running around in the Reardon family. We're convinced it's, it's so distinct we can actually name the persons we think have it. it it's not just something that environments given to them. It, it must be something in the gene. We believe someday scientists will isolate that gene and say that's the know-it-all gene. Matter of fact, our dad, God rest his soul, had it. And my dad, to his credit, knew a lot. He never finished college, but he, in my estimation, was a mechanical genius. He could see something and he could create it. He had a welder and he made all kinds of fantastic things. But dad was one who seemed to have to know it all. He found a lot of his security in what he knew. So one day our family had gotten together, and we went to an Indianapolis Colts game at the old RCA Dome, the Hoosier Dome. Remember that? And when we came in, we didn't go very often, so we didn't know where our seats exactly were. So when we went in, we actually discovered we had to go three-quarters of the way around, went the wrong direction to find our seats. But we found them, enjoyed the game, and then when the game was was over, Dad, know all that he is, points out, well, that's where we need to go to find our parking space. And my brother and I looked at each other, because Dad, even though he had a great sense of direction, this time was wrong, and we knew it. We thought, this is our chance to humble him just, just a little bit. So, and we knew Dad, so as we went by each corner where it exits out, we, we noted the intersection. We noticed what direction it was. It's southeast. There's the northeast exit. And as we came to our exit, we're ready to have Dad finally admit that he was wrong. And he said, well, this is the one I pointed to in the first place. That was Dad. Why well, sense that Nicodemus might have just a little bit of the know-it-all gene in him? And what's important was Jesus realized that if he is to experience the true grace of God and what God's Spirit has to offer, he's going to have to be humbled. He's going to have to realize how much he does not know. And so he enters into this conversation, and the conversation centers on him telling him that he needs to be born anew. That's what our common English Bible uses. Uh, but other translations break it down into either two dominant ways to understand this. Now, you've got to remember... Jesus speaks in Aramaic. So what we read in our Bible is the English translation of the Greek in which the New Testament is written in of whatever Jesus said in Aramaic, which we don't know. And so that can be translated in two ways. The Greek word is anaganao. It can be translated born again or born from above. And it makes a big difference how you interpret that, I think. I like how the common English Bible kind of finds a middle ground and says born anew, but 
it's clear that Nicodemus translated it as born again because it focuses on the how, the what, and perhaps what you can do and accomplish under your own. And that's obvious that that's his interpretation because what does he say? How is it that someone can be put back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Born again. Have you ever had somebody ask you if you're born again? What was your answer? Not an easy answer unless you give them exactly what they want to hear. And I understand where those persons are coming from because for many people, they've had a very dramatic transformation in their life. And for them, it's like night and day from where they've been. And some of them, they can name the place and the time that occurred. They know exactly the surroundings or who was talking. They know exactly. And so they sometimes make the mistake of thinking everyone should have that kind of experience. They focus on the how. They focus on being born again. But Jesus takes a different direction with Nicodemus. Jesus seems to suggest born from above. Because he focuses on the fact that, that uh, when you're born, you don't do anything about that, right? You're just born. And he suggests that being born of the Spirit is the same kind of thing. You're born from above. It's a focus on your orientation. It's a focus upon where you see God interacting in your life every day. And so how, God, how you come to faith can take many forms, and it can be a process. I know in my own life, as I've shared before, I can't pinpoint a day or a time that I came to know that God was Lord of my life, but I do know that between my freshman year in high school and my sophomore year in high school, I went from not sure there was a God to feeling that God was my companion, my friend, with me each and every day. I don't know when exactly that happened. It wasn't any certain experience. It wasn't any particular person. It was many experiences and many persons that brought me to a spot in which I knew God was my Lord and my Savior. I was born from above. And Nicodemus needed to hear that. He needed to be challenged by that. And, and then Jesus takes it the next step, and he uses this imagery, the imagery of the wind, to point out that you don't control God. That God is, is spirit. And the wind, it blows where it will, does it not? We should be able to relate to this. We've, we've had a little bit of experience with wind lately, haven't we? Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. I know a week ago last Wednesday, we had Ash Wednesday. I had some people say that uh, we had gotten in our car ready to come and the wind was blowing. We thought we said, we better just stay home, and I couldn't blame them. I got up the next morning from that wind blowing all night. We had in our garage a stack of cardboard from some construction work that we had, they were nice, neatly stacked, and when I came out in the garage, even though the door was down, they were blown all over the place. The wind had gotten around and under and over and had affected that by a construction person thought I'd done something. But that's the power of the wind. You see what it does, even though you can't see it. You hear it, you feel it, it is powerful. It penetrates. And such is the Spirit of God. And that's what Nicodemus needed to hear and understand. To realize that he doesn't have to control everything in his life. He doesn't have to know it all. And so when someone begins to embrace God in that way, 
you began to sense that you don't have to measure everything that you've done right in your life. You quit worrying about comparing yourself to others. You let go of the pressure to think that you've got to know everything and have it all figured out. And I believe that when you mature enough in your faith, you begin to realize that the more I know about God, the more I don't know. Because God is deep. His mysteries are immeasurable. So, I ask you today, what would happen if you see God as like the wind? If you see that God is one who gives birth from above? What happens if we begin to stop doing like Nicodemus and thinking we have to have it all figured out or proclaiming that we know what we know and begin to focus more in this season of Lent upon what we don't know and to meditate upon the grace that comes to us freely from God. It is he who establishes our place in his kingdom. It is he who gives us what we need for all of life. David Lowe's shares a story when he preached on this passage, John 3.16. And, and, and David was describing how in baptism, just like we did today, that we can baptize a child or an infant, and that's okay because the focus and the emphasis is upon God choosing us, God letting us come into his family. It's not us knowing and understanding it. It's just receiving it. And so his suggestion was that, that perhaps we should add to the baptismal ritual that when, I bapti- when we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we should end it and add four words with, like it or not. And so a few weeks later, somebody in his congregation, after hearing this sermon, said, Pastor, i got a story to tell you with it. His name was Tom. And he's talking about his five-year-old son, Benjamin. And he's explaining that he was trying to get Benjamin to go to bed. He was telling him his bedtime, and he wasn't going to have it. And finally, Benjamin just says, I hate you. And Tom, being a good parent, was composed. He says, well, that may be, but I love you, Ben. And Ben says, don't say that. He said, well, Ben, I do. I love you. Daddy, stop saying that. But Ben, it's true. I love you. Daddy, stop saying that right now. Don't say that anymore. And Tom said, remembering the sermon, I love you, Ben, like it or not. And I hope that's how we hear John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes or trusts in him will have eternal life. So, why don't you help me affirm that? Would you turn the person next to you and say, God loves you, like it or not? Doesn't that feel good? It's powerful. It's God's grace. We're going to make sure that after the service, if you are having trouble like Nicodemus, letting go, feel like you've got a control thing. Maybe it's time to pray God to enter your life more completely. So we invite you to go to the prayer room. We've got some of our retired pastors lined up to be there to pray with you if that's helpful or just pray on your own.
but learn to let go. Let God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of Nicodemus who, who fleshes out the challenge that John 3.16 provides for us. Help us to realize how incredibly powerful it is that you are the one who gives birth to us. You give birth to that spirit that brings us into your kingdom as your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen.